0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Uh, this, is, this is a very uh, important part of Scripture. So as we, as we come to it, let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, guide us and bless us now as we contemplate the challenge of our Lord Jesus Christ to us, to take up our cross and follow him. And we pray, Lord, that we would prove to be not merely people who possess the name, but be worthy of the name of Christ after whom we are called. And in the name of our Saviour, crucified and risen, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, You know, I, I believe there is so much wrong with the world to the point that there are moments where I consider running for public office, <laughs> trying to make my way in parliament so I can fix everything and put it right. But if I, if I did run for public office, I would, need, I would need some kind of like campaign motto. I've come up with several. Uh, Michael Bird, evil, but not that evil. <laughs> Mike Bird. Because redheads will rule the world, Gillard was just the beginning. Mike Bird, vote for him. He'd vote for you. Mike Bird, in your heart, you know he's right. And in your guts, you know he's nuts. Mike Bird, we could do worse. Mike Bird, because Queenslanders are cool. Mike Bird. He will ban Pokies, daylight savings, and coffee. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm not running for Parliament. Uh, but I always find it interesting when someone announces that they are they are running for office. You know, uh, the Australian political cycle, because you have a federal election every three years, it does feel like almost non-stop campaigning all the time. Okay. And there are some of those campaigns can be particularly acrimonious and bitter. Uh, It was was quite bitter in the, you know, Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. And I remember there was one funny moment where uh, Rudd was still in parliament, no longer Prime Minister, and he was at some, you know, St. Patrick's Day celebration. And he stood up, and everyone's expecting him to make an announcement he's going to challenge Gillard again. And he gets up and he says, I intend to challenge Julia Gillard over whether it shares more Irish heritage than me, became a bit of a joke. But in America, it can also be a big deal. You know, people form an exploratory committee, and they decide they're going to run for office. You've, you know, you've seen some uh, some big campaigns I've seen about Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Trump, and at the moment, Ron DeSantis. But in first century Judea, uh, people didn't campaign. You know, they didn't campaign to become king. You know, I promise there'll be great grain supply, more Torah in our Jewish schools or anything like that. Uh, There was no kind of, you know, lib spill uh, going on, anything like that. But people were waiting for someone to launch a military campaign and to drive out the Romans. That type of a person could be heralded as the Messiah. So they were waiting for a campaign of sorts. Because although they were, they were in the land, they had some degree of autonomy, there were various degrees of intrusion and encroachment upon the Jewish people. You can imagine them, them, them singing, much like the opening line of Prince of Egypt. Deliver us. Hear our call. Deliver us, Lord of all. Remember us. here in the burning sand. Deliver us. There's a land you promised us. Deliver us in the promised land. And some Jews reading their scripture look forward to a day where those great promises of Isaiah would fully come to fruition. There would be a new David, a new anointed king, a new temple. All of the the Jewish people scattered around the world would all return back to Judea. And Josephus points out that there were certain oracles in their scriptures. He doesn't tell us which one, but I think it might be some stuff from Daniel. Hinted at one day there would be a Jewish ruler who would expel the Romans and take control of at least the East. But this doesn't mean that everyone was sitting around waiting for a Messiah. It wasn't quite like in in Jesus Christ Superstar, where Pilate says, You you Jews produce Messiahs by the sackful. It's a slight exaggeration of the real case. Not everyone believed in a Messiah or wanted one, because it usually meant conflict and war. And there were different views. Sometimes people expected a military messiah, you know, someone who would have that campaign. In other places, they expected two messiahs, you know, a priestly messiah, a priestly anointed one, and a royal anointed person. Uh, Others expected one with more supernatural powers and traits. But every now and again, some person would rise up, usually during an interregnum, an intermission between rulers and some would would pop and there would be some act of sedition or a revolt. Just before Jesus was born, Judas the Galilean had launched one such revolt and people did wonder whether he might be a Messianic leader. There was Simon Ben-Giora during the Judean revolt against Rome in uh, 66 to 70 AD. Uh, he seems to have deliberately cultivated some messianic aspirations. And of course, there was an explicit messianic claimant in the second century in 132 to 135 with Simon bar who ex- who minted coins celebrating the liberation of Judea and claiming himself to be the Messiah. And so it was with the disciples. They could not but avoid having some sort of expectation about Jesus. Is he the Messiah? He definitely excited messianic hopes, which is easy to understand. He proclaims the kingdom of God, which is the coming of God as king to save and liberate his people, often in his Davidic servant. He uses a lot of language from Isaiah about a, about a new exodus or, or the full end of the exile. He calls 12 disciples, which are, which are symbolic of a reconstituted Israel. He's, he performs these mighty miracles and exorcisms. He compares himself to David and Solomon. But he, he does seem to avoid the messianic question, like someone avoiding, you know, are you running for Messiah or, or something like that? He keeps it a bit of a a mystery as to what he really thinks. But there does come a point where the cat gets out of the bag. Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, the the northern part of Israel, where Judaism meets paganism, the further reaches of the Jewish people, where there was not far from an imperial temple, a grotto also to the god Pan. And it's there that Jesus asks his disciples, so what's the gossip about me? What are people saying about me? And you can see in, in verses 27 to 29, he, people, the disciples tell him what people are thinking. Some say John the Baptist, you know. He continues, there's a lot of continuity between John and Jesus in terms of their ministry. They both warn of judgment. They're both concerned with the restoration of Israel. And in in fact, Herod Antipas even wondered whether Jesus was John the Baptist 2.0, as if John the Baptist had come back to life in Jesus, received a double portion of his spirit, or something like that. Others say, no, you're something like Elijah, that great miracle worker. Or others say, you're just a a run-of-the-mill prophet with with a sense of unmediated divine authority. Now, these views are to some degree understandable and correct, but... The problem was Jesus, he didn't fit into any precise category. Yes, he did exorcisms, but he spoke more than an exorcist. He was like a rabbi. He was like a prophet, a holy man, a healer. There are many different labels you could apply to Jesus, but at the same time, he seemed to transcend all of them. They needed a more comprehensive category to explain him, and the most ready one and the most understandable one was the Messiah and Jesus asks his disciples, "Who do they think he is?" Now, this isn't the first time they've been th- thought about this. When Jesus still still the the storm on the waters in the Sea of Galilee, they thought, well, who is this guy?" He doesn't just predict the weather; he tells the weather what to do. And when he when he speaks the way he does, he doesn't just say, "You know," when they're, they're discussing the Sabbath, he doesn't say, "Well, you know, on the Sabbath, you know, I heard." Rabbi Moshe, saying the name Rabbi Herschel that you should not eat tofu on the Sabbath. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't talk like that. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He seems to speak from, from God's point of view from the inside with this unmediated sense of divine authority. And so he finally asks the disciples, who do you think they are? And then Peter speaks up. Peter says what many have suspected, but maybe Some are afraid to explicitly ask of him, and he says, you are the Messiah. Jesus responds enigmatically, cryptically, warning them not to tell anyone about him, which is a kind of covert way of saying, yes, I am. But he, he, he in, in all without explicitly saying, he accepts the designation of the Messiah, and this is the Peter's confession, okay, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who is going to liberate God's people and make all of those prophetic promises come to fruition. But no sooner ha- have we heard this confession than Jesus offers a very stark. Surprising and yet gripping clarification. He then launches into what we call one of the first passion predictions. So he's accepted he's the Messiah, and then he says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. You can, you can you can see what's going on so he so, so yes I am the Messiah but it's the Messiah not as you know it this Messiah is the son of man that's a somewhat enigmatic title Son of man can mean simply human being like you know like in Hebrew Ben Adam son of Adam it can mean an, an idiom in Aramaic for someone or a person in my position possibly also harks back to Daniel 7 so this this mysterious character it, it would sound like the man. He says, the man must suffer and die. And this did not make any sense. If you're the Messiah, how do you suffer and die? I mean, the Messiah is meant to conquer and win. That's what Messiah does. I mean, you know, suffering crucified Messiah, that's like fried ice, you know, military intelligence, Anglican charity, you know, it, it It doesn't make any sense when you put those two words together. It doesn't make, hey, can you be the crucified Messiah? But Jesus says this is necessary. This must take place. Jesus is redefining the role of the Messiah because it turns out the Messianic figure is also the suffering servant, that, 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 that mysterious person in Isaiah 53. He's also the one who's going to cry in the Psalms, Lord, why have you forsaken me? The Messiah's goal is indeed to save God's people. But it's not just from the Romans. They're just a symptom of a bigger problem. The problem is the evil that's fallen on God's people, the evil that is around God's people in the wider world. It's then that Peter takes upon himself the initiative a bit of a lesson. I mean, these are famous words. Jesus spoke plainly about this, that the, the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer and die. And we and it reads in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Not the smartest thing. I mean, I imagine it's like, okay, you think you're the Messiah? Good. You're going to suffer and get crucified. Uh, excuse me, fellas, I'll handle this. Uh, come with me, Jesus. Look, I know it's been a long day. It's I've all had a bit of sun, you know, we're all a bit thirsty. But you know, you know, don't don't develop a martyr complex, man. You need you you need a messiah complex because you're the messiah, man. I've seen what you do. So let's send some letters to some to some dissident priests. I know the Pharisees, they will, they will back revolution at the drop of the hat, man. We can get this done. That's what he's doing. But this is the same temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness against Satan. What did Satan offer Jesus? You know, bow down before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You you, you, you You can have the kingdom of God. You don't have to go to the cross and I will give it to you at the cheap, cheap price of idolatry. That's what he was offered. And Jesus sees here the same temptation, the same satanic whisper, the same seduction to have the kingdom without the cross, to have the glory without the suffering. And that's why Jesus responds very abruptly, get behind me, Satan. Peter's rebuke is rebuke. And Jesus says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're concerned merely with what you see before you, not with the bigger picture. And it's because he doesn't understand the man, he doesn't understand the mission, he doesn't understand what it truly means to be the Messiah, the anointed one who must suffer and then enter his glory, who must make atonement for the people, who must be the Lamb of God, who must be the new David, the new Solomon, the one who is greater than the temple. He will embody all those things in himself and bring redemption and liberation for God's people. And it's at that point, Jesus issues this very strong challenge. Somewhat making an example of Peter, I believe, he gathers together, not just the disciples, the crowd and the disciples, and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And with that, he introduces a new criteria. If you want to be part of my movement, of my group, the criteria is now the cross. Now, imagine if I said to you, we're going to have a special study group for students. We will mentor you, look after you, and care for you. But the criteria is you have to give up coffee. Some of you may look at me and straight away and say, not a chance in Hades. I, like, I love Ridley and Mike, but not at the price of coffee. Jesus is doing something far more than he's saying cru- crucifixion, the cross, is the criteria by which we determine your commitment. He uses the cross, which by the way, is not, is not a mere trinket. It's it's not a religious symbol. It is a weapon of horror, shame, death. You know, one of the worst possible things you can see is a crucifixion. He says you've got to be willing to embrace the shame, the degradation, the disgrace, and that that's what you you've got to be willing to take that up and follow me discipleship then means crucifixion carrying a cross means a willingness to suffer humiliation shame and mockery as we follow Christ in mission we're not just called to celebrate his death but to participate in his mission and so what can we take away from this amazing story this challenge take up the cross? Well, the first thing I think we see is the question, who is Jesus, remains incredibly important. I'll never forget once preaching at a church uh, in in Brisbane, and there was a Japanese exchange student who, after the sermon, came up to me a little bit confused and said, "Uh, what is Jesus? Uh, She she didn't know he was a person. She thought it was a, a thing, a program, an idea. Who is Jesus still matters. You know, my, my time in high school was very traumatic. I did not enjoy high school. And our last day of high school was particularly bad. Some, we had some weird speakers on that day. I won't, I won't go into them. But, but at one point, they got the local Baptist pastor to stand up. And he said, said, said something to me that at, at the time, I just brushed it off. He said, the most important decision you'll ever make is who is Jesus Christ? Now, at the time, I just kind of rolled my eyes, religious weirdo, amongst a bunch of other really strange and weird speakers. But those words did stick with me. Those words did stick with me. And and it was you know some four or five years later that I really did answer the question for myself. And it was the important question, who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question will affect how you live and what you do with your life. The Who is Jesus question still matters for everyone, and the way we live our lives show what we think of Jesus. But the second thing we have to take away, and this is the real, uh, this is the main point, is the task, the challenge of taking up your cross, because this means self-renunciation, self-giving, self-sacrifice, doing this for God's kingdom, for Christ, and for others. Now. The fact that you are here suggests that you are willing to forego other things. You are willing to go to other places, undertake a vocation that does not necessarily have the best remuneration package or is the most popular one in town. I've worn my clerical gear in, Denton in the CBD of Melbourne twice and both times I've been either physically or verbally attacked. Uh, we are not the most popular profession these days for those who are in Christian ministry and the fact that you're all here suggests you're willing to Im- embrace that. And it means centering Christ over self, dying to self, being crucified with Christ. But there are things that will always stop us from doing that, going further. Choosing safety over sacrifice. Safety is a is is something we do tend to prize. You know, I mean I've got I've got kids. I've got Safety issues. Certainly with my first child, it's like, oh my gosh, my daughter's walking close to the stairs, and I dive across the room and and crash tackle her. And oh my gosh. By stairs, I mean like one foot. By the third child, I'm like, she'll probably bounce. You know, but you know, we have safety concerns. But this old saying, isn't it about ships? Ships are safe in the harbor, but that is not what they are for. They're for sailing upon the seas. Same with our Christian. Christians are for doing Christian things, not just saying safe where we are, for taking risks. Or as Scott Howard preached a few years ago, do hard things, not just on the lacrosse field, in life. If you want to do great things for God, then you need to do hard things. The only place where success comes before work is the dictionary. Everywhere else, the hard work, comes first. And the other issue, and I I think this sums up so much of our culture, is that people are committed to the point of convenience. I am committed to the point, I am committed to Christ, as long as I get the benefits, but none of the cost. Okay? And, and, And that is it. But we've got to remember Christ. The cost he paid, he invites us to pay that cost with him, to participate in his sufferings. We can see that in the martyrs and the missionaries, the mentors of church history. A few weeks ago, I was talking to some brothers and sisters in a Ukrainian seminary, still running a Bible college now in Ukraine. They've had the chance to leave, to exit the country, but instead they've decided to stay and train the next generation of leaders in Ukraine. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying, this is the point, I'm not trying to guiltify you, I think that's not a word, but it'll work, into thinking, well, there's two tiers of Christians, there's those who take up the cross, and then there's the hoi polloi. I don't want to create a clergy laity distinction, or look down upon you, because you haven't been church planting in the slums of Somalia recently, so do you really love Jesus, if you haven't done any of that? But I think we can take this away. There is a difference between the followers and the fans. Those who admire Jesus at a safe difference, and those who are willing to put on their sandals and do hard things. There is no I in cross, but there is in crucify. <laughs> so maybe that's a bad example but the cross is the example. Uh, I mean, Thomas Kempis puts it well. I I love how he puts it. He says, Jesus today has, has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for his comfort, few who long for his distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to be part of his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, but few go as far as drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, but few that follow his shame on the cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall into complaining or become deeply depressed. There are those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, and bless him in times of trouble and heartache, even when they do not feel his consolation. Here at college, in your own churches, in ministry, in in prayer, wherever you are, we must continually discern in the precincts of our own consciences how to take up the cross and follow Christ, how to be cruciformed, shaped according to the cross, to undertake the imitation of Christ, to participate in his sufferings so that we might attain all that God calls us to be and more. And to that, my friends, let us pray. Our heavenly Lord, we Pray we would not merely be peripheral fans, but we would be followers, and our following of Christ would be in the footsteps of the cross, that we would follow in his example. So we would prove that we are Christians not merely by name, but by practice, by what we love, by what we fear, by what we run to, and what we run from we would show that we are disciples of the crucified Nazarene. In the name of our Lord, the crucified Christ, we pray. Amen.